0: Welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs, I am Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I am delighted to be reading chapter 17 from my grandad's book Around the Horn by Frank Downs. Chapter 17 includes Into Live Television, Opera, Gosta Green, Bolt, Midland Region Percy Granger. Broadcasting all of the Haydn symphonies. Sir John Reith, BBC Music Programme, Radio 3. Sir John Mandelwell, Cheltenham Festival. I mentioned in the previous chapter the coronation service in Westminster Abbey in 1953, and many thousands of words have since been written about that wonderful June day. Many of these words were in praise of the BBC for its amazingly successful coverage of that event. However, without attempting to add to that thoroughly deserved praise, I am reminded of an amusing anecdote experienced in my own home on that extraordinary day. Television sales rocketed around this time and families fortunate enough to have acquired a set were indeed popular parties for families and friends were arranged in countless homes throughout the land and we were no exception ensconced in a semicircle around a 9-inch bush television set family neighbors and dick merryweather a horn playing cbso colleague from sydney australia watched the spectacle from early morning andrew now approaching 3 sat in a high chair and was the youngest member of the assembly. He sat next to Grandma, the eldest, in the centre of the group. Came the early afternoon and we were witnessing the climax of the ceremony, the crowning of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Having been duly crowned, the anointing was to follow. But this we did not view. A canopy was placed over the Queen and together with the Archbishop she disappeared from view. Seconds ticked by, adding to the solemnity of the occasion, and then the canopy was withdrawn. Oh! exclaimed Grandma. She's still there then? The whole household was convulsed, and one had a vision of the Archbishop of Canterbury in the role of Tommy Cooper, reacting to his trick going disastrously wrong. My friend Dick Merriweather, who laughed uproariously, told me some time later that he had recounted the story in a letter home to Sydney and that it had apparently caused much mirth amongst his family and friends. The BBC Midland Orchestra's debut on television came on the 9th of February, 1954 in a programme called Opera for Everyone, Midland Region lacked a suitable studio for the programme and it was finally decided to use the Great Hall at the King Edward School, Edgebaston. My first impressions were of complete and utter chaos. Cameras with twinkling red lights, never-ending cables running in all directions, ear-phoned pipe-smoking men in pullovers scurrying about and studio managers shouting across the room. How on earth were they going to put all of this together in time for a live performance? Numerous breaks to get cameras in position for shots on the set and the orchestra tucked away from the singers, it all seemed impossible. Amazingly, it all came together at the final run-through and there were no serious musical problems at the actual performance, mainly due to the thoroughly experienced Leo Vormser. With the opening of the television studio at Gosta Green the orchestra appeared regularly mainly in the concert hour series with various conductors including Sir Charles Macaris, Stanford Robinson and Sir Adrian Bolt. Sir Adrian appeared with Campoli as soloist in the late 1950s. The programme was designed to highlight the fact that Sir Adrian was returning to Birmingham to conduct the CBSO for a period of 12 months Rudolf Schwartz having left to take over the BBC Symphony Orchestra. The producer of the programme had therefore arranged to interview our distinguished guest conductor before we began to play. We rehearsed for the whole of the previous day, Saturday, and on Sunday morning before the programme which was about to go out at 3pm. Throughout Saturday it was the usual pattern of television rehearsal, stopping and starting, numerous coffee breaks whilst cameramen, producer and studio managers sorted out problems. There were many interviews with the maestro as we progressed through the day and it was on these interviews that we in the orchestra focused our attention, not without a sense of growing amusement. That attention was on one particular question put to Sir Adrian by the interviewer. It was as follows. Sir Adrian, How many times do you expect to be conducting the CBSO over the next 12 months? Oh, probably about 12. On the second interview? Oh, I should think about 10. On the third? Oh, perhaps 8 or so. On the final rehearsal it was... Around 8 or perhaps 9. By now, interest in these varying answers had spread to camera crews and technical staff in the studio, and well before the transmission in the afternoon entrepreneurial forces were laying bets on what the final number would be. There was intense interest as we went on vision and the presenter of the programme began his interview. It lasted some minutes, ranging far and wide over Sir Adrian's career and connections with Birmingham and the BBC Symphony Orchestra, his international travels and memories of Nikish and Reger in Leipzig during his student days. He spoke of Elgar, Vaughan Williams and Arthur Bliss, but we were all waiting for the vital question, how many concerts? It never came, the interviewer did not ask. It was an anti-climax and all bets were off. Percy Granger, who died in 1961, appeared only once on television in this country and that appearance was with the BBC Midland Orchestra in the same series of Concert Hour. I remember his visit mainly because of the interest he created in bringing to the studio his own piano to which he had ingeniously fixed an extra pedal which turned over the pages of his music as he played. The complicated mechanism certainly did work but not without a certain amount of background noise a human page-turner would still be my choice. Returning to our sound broadcasting studio in Edgebaston, we performed four one-act operas. The Conspirators, The Yellow Princess, Comedy on a Bridge and Sister Angelica by Schubert, Saint-Saëns, Martineau and Puccini respectively. The Schubert and Saint-Saëns were first broadcast performances, With Leo Wormser and the projected broadcasting of all the Haydn symphonies, life was never dull in Midland Region's musical output. Midland Region in those days covered an extremely large area, south and west as far as Gloucestershire and across to Cambridgeshire, Suffolk and Norfolk to the east. Visits to the cathedrals of Gloucester, Worcester and King's College Chapel, Cambridge were included in the itinerary of outside concert broadcasts. The retirement of John Lowe, Midland Region Head of Music, coupled with music policy changes with the BBC orchestras caused some concern in the early 1960s. However, in 1961, when a young music producer, John Manderwell, was appointed as the new Head of Midland Regional Music, the region was extremely fortunate. Before coming to Birmingham, He had worked in London producing programmes mainly with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and he was positively buzzing with ideas and plans, which within weeks he put into action. It also became obvious in a very short time that he was a superb administrator with a keen interest in promoting live music throughout the area, particularly in the field of chamber music. A few weeks before he arrived, I had already formed a wind chamber ensemble drawn from the BBC Midland Orchestra and the CBSO, which had broadcast on the Midland Home Service. Having heard the ensemble, John suggested a new formation of five strings, string quartet and double bass, plus a wind quintet, thus enlarging the repertoire considerably. This we did with his full support, including an office with all facilities. The ensemble, led by Jürgen Hess, contributed to many programmes in and outside the region. One memorable occasion was a visit to Television Centre in London for the first performance of the Gordon Cross Opera, Purgatory, on BBC Two. Based there for a week, we went on to perform the same work at the 1964 Cheltenham Festival. We visited several other festivals during this time, Belfast and King's Lynn being amongst them. I don't think I could ever forget King's Lynn, mainly because of the experience I had at home the night before I travelled to that East Coast town on the wash. I had arranged to journey there early the next morning and had on this evening decided to give my horn one of its periodic overhauls, cleaning inside and out. Cleaning the outside was simple enough, but inside was a different story. It required the use of what is known amongst all wind players as a pull-through, i.e. either a piece of string with a piece of cloth attached or a long thin wire with a narrow brush at its end. Now most people will know that the horn has many feet of tubing, 12 feet or so on the F horn and 9 feet on the B flat horn. It follows therefore that should the pull-through break or get stuck on its way around the horn, one has an immediate problem. Throughout the many previous years, I had never experienced or even thought of this possibility, but it happened. The pull-through, string and cloth type, broke halfway round the instrument. I pulled, tugged and tried every conceivable method of removing it, for two solid hours without success. I began to get exceedingly concerned when at around 10 o'clock it still refused to budge. My neighbour Bert Britton was my salvation. A brilliant engineer, he owned his own factory in Bloxwich, north of Walsall. He was a truly remarkable man in so many ways. The inventor who had designed and made the lock for the escape hatch of the wartime Halifax bombers, astronomer, naturalist and mathematician, he surely could suggest a way out of my predicament. At 10.30 I rang his doorbell in desperation. His reaction on seeing me on the doorstep with the pull through dangling from the bell of the horn was one of incredulity. What the bloody hell have you done now? were his first words. He was always chiding me for my lack of ability to deal with mechanical problems. He examined the instrument for some time and tried, as I had, to release the offending obstacle. It was of no avail. There's only one thing for this, was his verdict without saying what the one thing was. I followed him as he made his way to his garage and backed his Bentley out into the drive, wondering what on earth he was going to do. He put the instrument on the back seat and within minutes we were speeding towards his factory. After opening gates and doors we finally reached the main factory, passing a variety of machines and equipment until we came to a halt next to a fair-sized oxygen cylinder. It was only then that I realised what he was going to do. Do you think it's safe to do this Bert? I said full of trepidation. ''There's no other way I can see,'' he replied, as he took the horn from me and placed the mouthpiece end of the instrument on the nozzle of the cylinder and slowly put on the pressure. My anxiety increased by the second. I fully expected the horn to end up as a horizontal pipe, 12 feet long. Then it happened. A missile of fragmented cloth and string shot out of the bell of the horn and landed a good 20 yards or so along the factory floor. That shifted the bugger, said Bert triumphantly, as I stood transfixed, but relieved that the instrument was still in one piece. John Mandewell's capacity for work was inexhaustible. Taking a great interest in the BBC Midland orchestral programmes, he organised and enlarged the scope of the orchestra's repertoire by amalgamating on different occasions with the BBC Northern Orchestra and the BBC Welsh Orchestra to perform Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, the Delius Brig Fair and Beethoven Eroica Symphony on tours of north region and Welsh regions of the BBC. Joining the Cheltenham Festival as BBC representative of the Midland region in 1962 as advisor, his presence and impact was immediate. Frank Howes, the chairman of the festival committee and former music critic of the Times, verified this when he wrote in the preface of the 1967 festival programme, An acknowledgement of a different kind is now due. When I wrote the short history of the Cheltenham Festival for our coming of age, I was able to give some account of the way the festival was run and the chief personalities who made it run. We have, as our supporters are aware, made changes, experiments and variations over the past six years in the setting of the new music, which it has been our primary aim to bring forward. The ingenuity and dynamism injected into the committee to accomplish the new looks we have given to our now well-established tradition have come from Mr John Manderwell. Mr Manderwell came onto the committee as representative of the BBC's Midland region and from the beginning has been fertile in ideas. In the last year or two especially, we have come to rely on him as our programme advisor for more than ideas. We do in fact make use of his contacts, not only with the profession, but with the whole musical life of the country as it is lived from year to year. This has involved him in an amount of labour far transcending his duties as a committee man and it is now full time for the festival to express publicly its gratitude for what it owes him. I have already specified ingenuity and drive, ideas and work, to which I should add deep interest and devotion. So, I take this opportunity as its chairman to express the committee's thanks to him and, presuming on your goodwill, to acknowledge the public's debt to him. Both are very great. This was a fitting tribute to the man who, in 1964, whilst still head of BBC Midland Music, with all the responsibilities that entailed, was given the task of formulating and setting up the music programme for Radio 3. This meant travelling between London and Birmingham several times a week for 12 months. He could, however, always find the time to play cricket for Midland Region. An excellent opening bat he was too in those days. We have many happy memories of Regional Clubs Day on the sacred turf at Edgebaston County Ground, where all the BBC regions competed in a day-long knockout contest, which always ended with a gigantic evening party. John left the BBC in 1968 to become the first director of music at the University of Lancaster and in 1971 accepted the invitation to become the first principal of the new Royal Northern College of Music. Created CBE in 1982 and Knight Bachelor in 1989, he holds fellowships of the Royal Academy of Music, the Royal College of Music, the Royal Northern College of Music, the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, Manchester Polytechnic, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, Trinity College of Music, and recently the Birmingham School of Music. Long before I joined the BBC as an orchestral player, I had a great admiration and respect for radio announcers. Many of the well-known names of the past, Stuart Hibbard, Frederick Allen, Alvar Dell. Frank Phillips, were household names during the Second World War years. I have often wondered since then how they viewed the autocratic discipline imposed by Sir John Reith, the BBC's first Director General, who decreed that announcers should wear dinner suits to read the news bulletins. Many stories about that period have emanated. One such story was that of the young announcer, with only a few weeks' experience in broadcasting, being caught in a compromising situation with a secretary. The couple were, in fact, kissing in one of the corridors of Broadcasting House when the director-general appeared unexpectedly around a corner. The young man's instant dismissal caused great concern amongst senior announcers, so much so that a deputation went in to see the DG to plead for this unfortunate young colleague on the grounds that the offence did not justify such drastic action. No, he must go. We cannot have such behaviour at the BBC, was the curt and very firm reply. The deputation continued to press for a more lenient view of the matter, and the meeting dragged on for some considerable time before the chief relented. All right, he said. He may stay, but he must never, never read the epilogue announcers like musicians suffer from nervous inhibitions where a musician will develop a complex about playing one particular note or phrase in a symphony likewise announcers can equally fret about a particular pronunciation or sentence the amusing story of the bbc announcer who hated saying rimsky korsakov illustrates this this poor man would try to avoid any program using this composer's name even to the point of going sick for the day he dreaded the day which would surely come when he had no alternative but to face it. That day came when his schedule included a music programme of works by Rimsky-Korzakov. He decided on a plan of action to overcome his phobia. For some days he sat in front of a mirror for an hour, slowly pronouncing rimsky korsakov The crucial day arrived. On the tube to Baker Street he was still quietly pronouncing the dreaded word. In the studio, he sat at the microphone, still mouthing rimsky korsakov The orchestra assembled, the conductor on the podium, the red light appeared. He was on the air. Good evening, he began. Tonight, we are broadcasting a programme of orchestral music by the Russian composer rimsky korsakov Deep sigh of relief. And we begin with the well-known Bum of the Flightleby. Though that anecdote, humorous as it is, may lack some credibility, it is almost inevitable that some unfortunate individual will suffer a similar traumatic experience as did a young announcer in Midland region. I was playing in a chamber ensemble which included a harpsichord in a programme called Music at Night. The broadcast was live from 11.30 to midnight and we were almost at the end of the programme when this poor man startled us all with... We now come to one of Handel's late harps for worksichord. End of chapter 17. To continue on the theme of being surprised by radio presenters, I remember being delighted when Petro Trelawney said the words, Gorgeous writing, immediately after playing the Czech Philharmonic Horns recording of Andrew Downes' Prelude from five dramatic pieces for eight Wagner Tubas on Radio 3, in 2014. Here is that work from the CD of Andrew Downs' works for Horns and Wagner Tubers, which was dedicated to the memory of Frank Downs.